Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And last summer, we took a stab at covering one specific, perhaps lesser known, aspect of the Civil War, and that was Civil War spies. And we had so much fun doing this little mini-series, as we like to call it, that we decided to take a similar approach with a different topic involving the Civil War. And now... Before you get too excited or up in arms, that's not to say that we'll never cover any of the army campaigns, battles, or raids that took place. It is the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, after all. So that's coming. But for now, we're enjoying focusing on those facets of the war that maybe didn't receive as much press as the battles and little issues like who won and who lost. Just little you know, issues like that. That sort of thing. <laughs> and the one we want to look at right now is the world of Civil War medicine. And it kind of dovetails nicely into the discussion we did earlier this year of David McCullough's latest book, The Greater Journey, which includes stories of some Americans of the era that were studying medicine in Paris. Yeah, and in fact, many of the unsung heroes of the Civil War battlefront weren't soldiers at all. They were doctors, they were nurses and volunteers who still managed to save thousands of lives, although they were working in really, really horrible conditions with what we would now consider primitive equipment. And maybe even at the time they considered it to be kind of primitive. Yeah, not, not what you'd have in the hospital for sure. But even though they may not have started out with many, during the course of the war, both the Federal Army and the Confederacy did employ thousands of surgeons and assistant surgeons. So we do have a lot of people to choose from if we decide to pursue this little mini-series a bit. And according to the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, all of these doctors were officers, surgeons were the equivalent to a major and assistant surgeons were equivalent to a captain. So from that, you can surmise if most or all of these surgeons were officers, that they were also all men. Yeah, but that may surprise some people because there were a handful of women in the United States who had received medical degrees from U.S. institutions by that time. But women hadn't been allowed to practice medicine in much of the world basically since the Renaissance. And the tide was just turning. It was just beginning to turn on that. Still, whether you had an MD or not, if you were a woman, the most you could do in the world of Civil War medicine is work as a nurse or a volunteer. But one woman, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, managed to overcome the obstacles and is said to have been the only woman surgeon who was formally engaged for field duty during the Civil War. She worked for the Union side, and she ended up winning a Medal of Honor for her efforts, though there was some controversy surrounding that, too. So we're going to take a look at how she pulled this off, as well as some of the more prevalent rumors about her. For example, did she really dress like a man? And was she really a union spy? It always has to come back to those spies. I'm sorry. This is secretly an extension of the spy series. (laughs) But first, we're going to look at how Mary Edwards Walker got her start. It was unusual during her time for women to go to medical school, of course. But Mary Edwards Walker grew up in a kind of unusual family. She was born November 26, 1832 in Oswego in upstate New York. And her father, a man named Alva, had a farm nearby. She was the fifth daughter of Alva and his wife, Vesta. But Walker's parents were quite progressive and they really encouraged their children to pursue an education and even ran a school that the kids attended to make sure they got educations. 
So like her sisters, Walker went into teaching for a short time after finishing up her studies, but she had ambitions to do more than that, to go on and get a medical degree. And her father encouraged that. So she was able to enroll at Syracuse Medical College, which was considered kind of a non-traditional school. It treated men and women more equally and enrolled there at age 21. So she's off to a start. She graduated in 1855, and she was the only woman there to be awarded a medical degree. Having that degree, though, didn't automatically translate to a successful career in medicine. Getting people to take her seriously as a doctor was pretty tough. Building a career was probably tough for any female doctor at that time, we should say that. But one thing in particular made it even harder for Walker to fit in, and that was her appearance. You see, from a young age, Walker was a supporter of dress reform. Definitely by the time she graduated, she was vocal about it, at least. And she, like several other reform-minded people, thought 19th century women's clothing was unhealthy with dirt gathering long skirts and stiff petticoats and corsets that made it tough for women to breathe. Kind of dangerous, too. A fire hazard could get caught in things. Many problems. problems. Yep. So instead, Walker wore what became known as the bloomer dress. And it was known as this because it was worn and championed by the feminist Amelia Jenkins Bloomer. And this outfit consisted of trousers that had full billowing pant legs that tapered around the ankles and a skirt that was shortened to about four inches below the knee. Sometimes you see that the skirt was at the knee, so but somewhere around there. And Walker argued that this was not only healthier, it was, quote, a convenience to her business. So in other words, it made it easier to work. Yeah, move around. We actually talked kind of about a similar costume in the Oneida episode. It wasn't That's true. bloomers, but little short pantaloons, and they'd wear um, shorter knee length or mid-calf skirts to just make it easier to do all the work that you had to do if you were living on the Oneida commune. But This outfit, these bloomers, it didn't really help Walker get any work. People ridiculed her, and she tried for a few months to set up a practice in Columbus, Ohio, but it was not successful. So she established another practice in Rome, New York, and she got married to a fellow physician named Albert Miller, and they did as many uh, married doctor couples do now, it seems. They shared a practice, although that was also unsuccessful. And she didn't take his name, which was another sort of twist she had on common conventions of the time. She also had the word obey omitted from her wedding vows. But by 1859, Miller had separated from Walker, and they divorced 10 years later. When the war broke out, Walker wanted to help out the Union cause, and so she went to Washington. She knew that the Army would be in need of skilled surgeons, and she hoped that, it being a time of war and all, a woman doctor might actually stand a chance. She was completely wrong there. The Army turned her down. They wouldn't give her an appointment as a physician. Walker stayed on in D.C. anyway, though, working as a volunteer nurse at a hospital there, and she helped to organize a Women's Relief Association, which I think was a place where women seeking loved ones could stay, while she kept trying for an Army appointment. In 1862, she had to leave D.C. for a while, though, and she earned a degree from the New York Hygiotherapeutic College in New York City during that time. She did return her attention to the war later that year, though, and ended up traveling independently to Virginia to lend a hand in the field, first to the Army of the Potomac and their encampment in Warrington, Virginia, and then to Fredericksburg. 
they had a huge need for medical personnel. And Walker arrived actually in the middle of a typhoid epidemic, just to give you an idea of how bad off they were. So she was allowed at this time to treat soldiers, but again, on a volunteer basis. She was not paid for her work. They gave her rations and a tent. But Walker really was finally right there in the thick of it with very few supplies helping care for survivors after battle. She treated wounds and she's said to have tried to avoid amputation whenever possible. And she also helped treat a number of camp diseases, too, which, of course, disease was the biggest killer in the Civil War, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that may be the case. So Walker was getting to use her skills and make a difference. She was saving lives, but she still really wanted that army appointment. She continued to lobby for that. So eventually, after working for so long in the field, she managed to make a name for herself. And in 1863, around the end of 1863, beginning of 1864, she finally did receive an appointment as a civilian contract surgeon to the 52nd Ohio Volunteers. Since she was a civilian, though, she had to undergo a medical competency exam, and that did not go so well. No, the examination board was, of course, made up of all men, and they kind of seemed to be biased against her right from the beginning. According to an article by John Bloomberg in American History, one of them described her as a, quote, medical monstrosity dressed in a, quote, hybrid costume and said that she, quote, had no more medical knowledge than an ordinary housewife and was entirely unfit for the position of medical officer. Pretty harsh words there. But Walker didn't feel that she had been fairly treated during this examination. She later said, quote, I felt that the examination was intended to be a farce and more than half the time was consumed in questions regarding subjects that were exclusively feminine and had no sort of relation to the diseases and wounds of soldiers. So Walker failed the examination, as you might guess, and was declared incompetent. But interestingly enough, their judgment did not stick. Who knows why? Maybe because those who supported her knew her actual abilities. But regardless, she got to keep her post and join the 52nd Ohio Regiment near Chattanooga, Tennessee. Her contract paid $80 a month. So it seems like she's doing well at this point, but it's winter when she takes her post. And in addition to treating soldiers and even some local civilians, she spends a lot of her time riding beyond union lines, treating anyone who needed help and delivering supplies. And this is probably how she got that reputation as a spy. She often gets lumped in. If you look up Civil War spies, she ends up on lists. She has suggested a lot during our series. That's very true. But while the Army may have used her to get information, there's really no proof that they did. Walker may have unofficially kept her eyes and ears open, but she never mentioned anything about spying in any of her writings. So it's said, though, that Walker did often carry two revolvers with her and that she was usually escorted when she crossed Union lines. But for some reason, on April 10th, 1864, she was alone and unarmed and Confederate soldiers did capture her as a spy. And according to Bloomberg's article, the Confederates apparently didn't know what to make of Walker, really. Confederate Captain B.J. Sims said of her in a letter, quote, this morning we were all amused and disgusted, too, at the sight of nothing but what the debased and depraved Yankee nation could produce, quote, a female doctor. 
So the soldiers took her to Richmond, Virginia, where she was imprisoned in a converted tobacco warehouse called Castle Thunder, which was a pretty nasty place, as the name suggests. Walker was there until August when she was exchanged for a Southern officer, and her time as a prisoner of war really affected the state of her health. She lost a lot of weight and developed vision problems that ended up affecting her ability to practice medicine. After she was freed, though, Walker didn't return to the tent hospital. She was assigned to a women's prison hospital under contract as an acting assistant surgeon. And then later she was assigned to work in an orphanage in Tennessee. And according to the Encyclopedia of American Military History, though, these were more administrative type positions than surgical ones. So she wasn't really getting to practice her profession to the extent she had earlier. These appointments were also the last of her career with the Army. Walker left government service in June 1865, so she never quite had the full career that she wanted with the Union Army. Apparently, after she was released from prison, she'd hoped that she'd get a permanent position in the Army as a medical inspector. But that same year, the same year that she did leave the Army on November 11, 1865, she was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Andrew Johnson for rendering, quote, valuable service to the government to the detriment of her own health. So, I mean, here's this lady. She can barely get a job with them for most of the war. And then she comes out of it with a Medal of Honor. Yeah, that's a pretty good consolation prize, I guess. I guess. So. And she was the first woman. And I think... I'll put that in asterisks. I'll put that out there in asterisks. I think she's still the only woman to have received a Medal of Honor. Let us know if if there's another out there. Moving on to after the war, Walker did some newspaper work in New York before returning to D.C. to practice medicine there. But from what I can gather, most of the rest of her life was really devoted to the various social and political issues that she supported rather than any secure form of employment. In 1866, for example, she was elected president of the National Dress Reform Association. But eventually, other feminists tried to distance themselves from her because she was growing increasingly eccentric. And also, they were just afraid that people were focusing too much on what all the women were wearing rather than their politics. Too much attention going to the bloomers. Exactly. But that didn't seem to affect Walker's point of view on the matter. She continued to dress differently from most women. While in the army, she dressed like an officer, which was sort of one thing because, you know, maybe she was just dressing like an officer to fit in with everyone else. But after the war, she eventually started wearing full male attire down to a wing collar, a bow tie and a top hat. And she even got arrested for this. Yeah, more than once, in fact, for masquerading as a man. And her excuse was that she'd been given permission by Congress to dress that way. But there's no record of any such decree by Congress. She wrote two books, one that is at least partly autobiographical called Hit and another called Unmasked or the Science of Immorality. But she was also known to display herself in museum sideshows. So a lot of people just thought that she was maybe kind of, she'd gone crazy, essentially. Yeah, and she's said to have worn her Medal of Honor around all the time. In 1917, though, Walker's Medal of Honor was revoked, along with about 900 others. She wasn't the only one that this happened to. It was revoked by the Board of Medal Awards because she hadn't actually seen combat. But Walker refused to give it back. According to the Encyclopedia of American History, she said, quote, you can have it over my dead body. And she continued to wear it until she died on February 21st, 1919, on her family's farm in Oswego. So she was good to her threat. She was. And in 1977... 
Thanks in large part to the efforts of her great-great-niece, Anne Walker, President Jimmy Carter restored her Medal of Honor, and that medal now resides in the Oswego Historical Society. So one more note on Oswego. Her hometown recently announced just this year that they're planning on building a $53,000 six-foot bronze statue of Walker outside their town hall, you know, celebrate this famous figure from their town. I'm wondering, I guess they'll, they would have to put her in the reform dress style, don't you think? Or maybe even the officer's uniform. Oh, I don't know. I uniform. hope it's the reform dress style. Yeah. I mean, if, if she was the president of the party, it seems only fitting. And while Dr. Walker's dress is yet undecided for this statue, we did want to try to give you a better picture of what she was like as a person. And here's a good New York Times quote that helps describe her. Few people have ridiculed Dr. Mary to her face. Perhaps it was because she had a sort of dignity and because about her essential goodness, there has never been any question. And Walker said of her own accomplishments in 1897, I am the original new woman. Why, before Lucy Stone, Mrs. Bloomer, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony were, before they were, I am. In the early 40s, when they began their work in dress reform, I was already wearing pants. I have made it possible for the bicycle girl to wear the abbreviated skirt, and I have prepared the way for the girl in knickerbockers. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, she was a controversial figure at times, but she helped a lot of people. And we were kind of giggling a bit when we got to the part where she wasn't going to give her medal back. But really, I mean, it feels like she does deserve some of these honors that she's getting. And Well, and we decided it was just a bad idea to revoke medals that have already been given out. Yeah, that just We talked about rude. that recently in the, the dog episode, military dogs. One of them got his medals taken back. Yeah, I just don't like that. Yeah, I mean, when, once, you, once you give them, you can change your standards going forward. But if you give somebody a medal of honor, let them keep it. Well, Sarah Dowdy has spoken, and I think this is a good place to move on to the listener mail. So first we have a very sweet note from Nick, who looks like he might have gotten out his special calligraphy pens to to do this. Because I don't you think it looks like um, it's a fine pen. It does. It looks nice. It does. So he wrote to us to suggest Martin Luther and um, also asked us to write. So I hope um, reading your mail on listener mail makes up for not writing. So yeah, we have really terrible penmanship, <laughs> so you don't want to receive a letter from no, us. But, but thank you, Thank Nick. you so much. And then we also have an email from Josh, and I just really, really liked this. He wrote to us to say, I am an American currently living on a kibbutz agricultural community in Israel, and my job on the kibbutz is a pomegranate farmer. I pick the fruit, prune the trees, and do just about everything else needed to help the pomegranates grow. I've been listening to your podcast every day, all day, for a couple weeks now, and I just want to say thank you for making my day so fun. So this is awesome. I mean, he's picking pomegranates and listening to our podcast. Yeah, I love that. We we think we're thinking of making a new listener mail specific segment I've that's actually, devoted to things people are doing while they're listening to stuff you missed in history. I've class. started a list already. I'm not going to lie yeah. because we have been getting so many of these. I think since we read the listener mail recently, where the woman listened while she was doing archaeological work and played it out loud to alert bears to her presence and. I I thought that was an unusual use for the podcast. That was a cool one, a too. practical one. Yeah. So 
Pomegranate growing is up there, though. Definitely up there. Pruning pomegranate trees. So uh, we are starting a list. If you do something kind of interesting or unusual while listening, um, you know, don't feel bad if you're running or working in your doing pee. your laundry. That's fine. I know that's what most of y'all do, and that is great. But if you do anything like pick pomegranates and listen to our podcast, let us know. You might get on listener mail. And uh, you can send us all of those suggestions or comments at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History. We got a good one we heard from people who baked pies while they listened to the podcast on Twitter. It um, makes me want a pie. It does makes me want a pie, too. Um, and we're also on Facebook, so you have lots of ways to tell us uh, if you do something unusual while you listen to the podcast. And we have plenty of articles about war that you can look up as you're listening to our Civil War-related podcasts, and you can look those up on our website and on our homepage, which is at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 